There are many positive things about Advent. The time together with families, looking over devotions, focusing our hearts on what is the true meaning of Christmas. But when I did a deep dive into the study of the history of Advent, I found even more that was really exciting to prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. And that's what I'd like to share with you today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you can learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Our lesson today is the real Advent, seven extraordinary preparations God made for the birth of Jesus. Let's just look for a minute at traditional Advent. The word Advent means arrival or coming, and it refers to the coming of Jesus to be born as a baby. And traditionally, we celebrate it by lighting candles, reading devotions, preparing our hearts for Christmas. Now, I don't want to sound like an old Scrooge. These are all beneficial activities and, quite honestly, a welcome alternative to the constant commercialism of the holidays as people prepare for Christ's birth. But as meaningful as they are, I want to share with you God's true Advent, the seven preparations for Christmas that took not just five weeks, but thousands of years, and that all came together in the birth of Jesus that happened, as the Bible says, in the fullness of time. Obviously, timing was important. So what does that mean for Advent? What made the time right for God to send his son? Now, it's a fascinating story that w- that can be told over the centuries. And what I want to do is I want to look at seven historical events that prepared the world for the birth of Jesus. So, hang on. It's really a good story. Now, one more preliminary note about Christmas at that um that this whole thing is going to teach us. This lesson really demonstrates two key foundational truths about the Christian faith. And they are, number one, the Christian faith is rooted in real events that happened in verifiable history. And number two, God works in and through history. Now, please do listen closely. I, I know I keep saying I'm excited about this, I'm excited about this, but I am really excited about this. As I studied it, and as you'll see, as you look down through the centuries and what God did to prepare for his son, it will not only prepare your heart for Christmas, but help you really trust the God who works through his. It's fitting to review this material in preparation for Christmas because Jesus' birth is a real historical event. It's not some fantasy birth of a mythical savior. One And it was one that was thousands of years in the making. So let's get started on it. Some foundational facts. First of all, the location where all this took place. This is in the Mediterranean Basin. And let me say here on the podcast that I'm also going to be doing a video of this that has a large number of maps. The video will be on YouTube. If you get a chance, check out the YouTube video because I think you'll find the maps really interesting. But the location was the Mediterranean Mediterranean 
basin, and the primary people involved were the children of Israel. They're gods, they were God's chosen people to be his light to the world, and from whom he would send the Messiah, and those who interacted with them throughout the history. Now, all the events and locations that I'm going to be sharing can be extensively verified in secular history. <laughs> no faith is required to follow along with what I'm going to talk about. That's one thing that's, that I find so um, reassuring about the Christian faith is we aren't based on fable or uh, lands in the mists or this or that or the other. No, these are real places. You can visit them today. You can look them up in Wikipedia, you know, whatever. Um, you can confirm any of the things that I'm talking about online. The events, the locations, whatever. It's all just regular old history. Now here's where the story starts. From their origin in Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became a nation when God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Now after he delivered them, he made a covenant a contract with them at Sinai. Now, we sometimes forget. God doesn't just say, oh, I love you, do whatever you want. No, he makes covenants with his people. Now, we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments part of this, but the bigger picture of the covenant with God was that if they obeyed, this is a summary of quite a few chapters of the Bible, if they obeyed and worshipped him, they would be blessed, kept safe, and in their land. And if not, they would be punished by captivity and they would be taken out of their land. Now, covenants are not to be taken lightly. A little bit more about it. The covenant was not just for their sake. They were God's chosen people. But they weren't chosen just for private blessings and protection. Sometimes we think, oh, God blesses me just because I'm such a wonderful person. No, that's not it. Um, they were supposed to be a light and a witness to the nations around them. They were to do that by worshiping the only one true God and following his commands, which were very different from the idolatrous, immoral cultures around them. And in this way, they were to be a light to the nations. That was their covenant. You can read the details in Deuteronomy 29. Now, just as God keeps his word in blessings, he also keeps his word in judgments. If they did not follow their part of the covenant, if they did worship other gods and live without following God's laws, and again, you can read the details in the historical books and the prophets. That's what the whole Old Testament is about, how God told them to do something, they didn't do it, he sent a prophet, the prophet warned them, they disobeyed anyway, and then judgment came. God said he would discipline them. And ultimately, if they didn't repent, he would remove them from the land. Well, they didn't obey, and they were judged. And we're, now, trust me, we're getting to the whole Advent part here and how it fits in. Though removal from the land was the ultimate horror for them, it also was the start of a series of seven preparations that would culminate in the birth of Jesus. That's the real Advent that we're going to talk about. Here's how it worked. We're going to go through them one by one, then I'll point out why each one was important and explain how it fit into God's plan. The first preparation was this series of deportations. Now, 
It seemed, of course, really horrible at the time, and it was horrible. Uh, deportations in the ancient world were bloody, awful, dreadful affairs, and Israel went through a number of them. The first one took place in 722, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and scattered the exiles all throughout the Middle East. They did not return. The second one, the uh, major deportation, actually it was a series of them, took place in 576 BC under Nebuchadnezzar when Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were primarily taken to Babylon and the surrounding areas. Basically, if you look at a map, they were taken from Jerusalem and scattered all throughout, all east throughout that entire area. Now, an opportunity to return to Israel after 70 years was offered to the people in the Babylonian captivity, but many of them didn't return. They stayed in the land that they were taken to. You see that in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Many of them were much more comfortable there than in Jerusalem. Now, other migrations took place during the Old Testament times for various reasons, for trade, political, etc. Jewish people moved to Egypt, to Rome just throughout the whole Mediterranean basin. Now, here's why this was important. The Jews on their own wanted to just stay all huddled in Israel. It was comfy there, it was the promised land, this was marvelous. Um, but God didn't want them in their, their sort of version of this holy huddle. And groups of people then, because of these deportations, were scattered all throughout the Mediterranean, all throughout the known world at that time. And interestingly enough, because these started out with, with um, God's discipline, many of these communities and the people that we know about became then strong believers in Jehovah. They retained their faith. For those of you, please again watch the video and you'll, you can see much more detailed maps on how this took place and where it was and all that, which is kind of interesting. But then, with all these people scattered, we have preparation number two, the development of the synagogue system. Now, though this was sort of developing earlier, it really came became formalized during and after the Babylonian captivity because the priestly leadership realized that they needed to develop a system to worship God that was not dependent on the temple in Jerusalem. They realized many of the Jewish people were never going to go back home. So they needed a way to worship God. They were scattered throughout the world. They would never return to Jerusalem. Now out of this system, out, out of this realization, excuse me, the synagogue system was developed where if there were 10 Jewish men, they could form what was called a minyan. And from that, they formed a synagogue. Now why this was important? Now we had people scattered all over, but now houses of worship. Now a formal entity where people knew the one true God and studied the scriptures that pointed to the Messiah were spread throughout the whole entire known world. After that, Preparation number three, formalization of the Hebrew scriptures. During approximately the same time as the synagogue was formalized, after the Babylonian captivity, members of the same group known as the men of the great assembly or men of the great synagogue formalized what we know as our Old Testament today. Now, Ezra was one of the leaders of this group. He led one of the groups of exiles back to Jerusalem in four, approximately 459 BC. Nehemiah arrived about four 
14 years later, and they worked together for a number of years. Now, we don't know the exact process or the number of years precisely until it was finalized, but we know that the books that we have in our Bible are the same ones that they had prior to the birth of Christ. And we could go into all kinds of detail on this and how the Dead Sea Scrolls show this and etc. etc. But we do know that, that this is the scriptures that they had. Why this preparation was important. Their scriptures told one consistent story. One set of prophecies, which meant that Jews all over the world studied the same scriptures, including the many passages that predicted the coming of the Messiah. However, there was a problem developing in that their scriptures were primarily in Hebrew, and fewer and fewer people spoke Hebrew. From the time of the Assyrian captivity on, a majority of the people spoke Aramaic, which was the universal language of the world at that time. Now, Aramaic, I'm sure you probably heard it talked about in church, and think, what, what in the world's that? Now, it uses the same alphabet as Hebrew, kind of like English and Spanish use the same alphabet, but it was a totally different language, just like English and Spanish, we use the same letters, but they're different languages. Um, languages. It was the same with Aramaic and Hebrew. Aramaic is what more and more and more people spoke, and Hebrew became, well, that's only the priests could read the Bible. Now, while this was going on, another universal language was growing in use, and that leads us to preparation number four, adoption of a new universal language, which was Koine Greek. Now, Koine Greek was one of the many dialects of Greek that was spoken at that time. There's different different dialects, but it was the one that Alexander the Great really liked. And Alexander the Great, as we know, conquered all of the entire known world. Now, in addition to being a great military leader, he was actually one of the most extraordinary minds uh, he was a brilliant scholar and philosopher in many areas. Now, um, this in part is to be expected. Aristotle, as in everybody studying in philosophy class, Plato, Aristotle, etc. Um, Aristotle, that Aristotle, was actually his tutor. And so he, um, he had all sorts of ideas about human brotherhood and um, all kinds of different things. But one of the things that he decided is that he wanted to really refine this language. And he also... Um, believe he was a very, in many ways, benign conqueror for the time. He absorbed the soldiers and the leadership from all these different nations into his world, into his army. And the one of the primary things, though, that was important to him is that they all speak Greek. The Greek language and the Greek culture is what was important to him. Now, Making Koine Greek the official language was just an extraordinary development at that time. It is not a hidden scholarly language. It is a dialect, again, of Greek. And he enforced it, Alexander enforced its use with his armies and the people that he conquered. Now, what makes Koine Greek so exceptional? It's, it's common. It's, again, it's not a scholarly, fancy, King Jamesy type language. It's very precise. Now, what thrills scholars today, I'm sure you've all been in Sunday school classes or church sermons or whatever, and the leader will say, now the Greek word means da-da-da-da-da, and this is a super big deal because the tense is this and that and the other. 
our Bibles, our, our New Testaments, written in the Koine Greek. And it is incredible because there is no doubt as to what God meant when he had it written in that language. But this is the kind of language that it was. So there was no confusion. Alexander, we assume, decided to develop this so there would be no confusion. When he told someone in his army, you do this, they would do that. When he wanted to uh, fine-tune administration over some nation or whatever, uh, there was no confusion. You know, the Greek kept it very, very clear, very, um, very understandable. Now, why this preparation was important? What the conquering army spoke, everybody had to learn to speak. Everybody in the entire known world now spoke, read, and wrote in the same language, Koine Greek. Now, it may not have been their home language, but everyone knew it. It's similar to how English is to many today, though they may speak another language at home. Most people know English. That's how it was with Koine Greek. Now, good news, bad news about Koine Greek as a universal language. The good news is that everyone in this part of the world could communicate, and it remained that way for over 500 years. The bad news related to the Jews. Now remember that the three preparations, three significant preparations previously, the Jews were dispersed all over the area. They met in synagogues where they all worshipped. Their scriptures were formalized. We have the same content as the Old Testament. But the bad news is that the Jewish scriptures were in Hebrew. Most of the Jewish people now spoke Aramaic and Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. They couldn't read or understand God's word in Hebrew any more than all of us would understand a Hebrew Bible today. So, obviously, this was a problem. Once again, God steps in, and he used Alexander and his influence to bring about the next step. Unlike many in the ancient world, Alexander held the Jews in high regard as did one of his generals who divided his empire after his death. That general was Ptolemy of Egypt, and his son, Ptolemy Philadelphus, was responsible for the next step in our preparation for the birth of Jesus, and that is preparation number five, translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Ptolemy Philadelphus lived from 281 to 246 BC, and he decided, because he loved his Jewish people who were living there in Egypt, in Alexandria, to have it translated into Greek, into what became known as the Septuagint. Now, there's a whole lot more to the story of the Septuagint. I mean, there's a lot more to it. Some of the stories are quite fanciful, and it, it took a while to get done, and there's just lots of different things that happened. But the key thing that is absolutely not disputed is that the content of the Hebrew Bible was now widely available to the Greek-speaking world. Now, why this preparation was important. Everyone in the entire known world could now read the Old Testament in the same language. It was no longer the language primarily of the priests, but of secular people as well. And like the Greek it was translated into, it was a very popular translation. It's one kind of like, it would have been sort of like uh, the Living Bible or the Message or something like that today. And it's the one that Jesus and the New Testament writers all quoted when they quoted um, Old Testament scriptures. So, okay, where are we now? We have God's chosen people, 
who often, not by their own choice, and who frequently massively messed up and were punished for it, but who represented the one true, true God, were scattered all over the known world. They were all worshiping Jehovah and looking forward to a Messiah, while reading the same holy scriptures in the same language. And so you have all these pockets of people everywhere, but there are two more preparations that are needed, and both were created by the next major world power, the Roman Empire, that conquered all of what had been Alexander's empire. They kept the Koine Greek as their official language and allowed the Jews to worship as they wanted to, but what they did was extraordinary, and that was preparation number six, the development of the Roman roads. You see, all these Jewish synagogues and people, they were scattered all over. The Roman roads linked them together. This was the most incredible system for transportation in the ancient world. It linked all parts of the Roman, formerly Alexander's empire. Many of them still survive today. They did a phenomenal job building them. The importance of this preparation is linked to one more. And this is the final preparation needed before the birth of the Messiah. And that was the Pax Romana. Not only were the Roman roads a final part of God's preparation, but the Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace, refers to the time from 27 BC to 180 AD in the Roman Empire. This 200-year period saw unprecedented peace and economic prosperity throughout the empire, which spanned literally from England all the way to Morocco. Now, if you've been paying attention, and I know y'all have, you see we're just going over the same area, the same area, the same area again and again. God scatters the people to all these areas. They develop synagogues. They have the Bible in their language. And now they're all linked together. Now the result of the Roman roads and the Pax Romana. Historian Lionel Casson says, and this is a great quote, the first two centuries of the Christian era were great days for a traveler. A planned network of good roads gave him access to all major centers, and the routes were policed well enough for him to travel them with relatively little fear of bandits. Because of the Pax Romana of Emperor Augustus, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, there are neither wars nor battles, nor great robberies nor piracies, but we may travel at all hours and sail from east to west. Here's why these two preparations were important. <laughs> Obviously, so common people could use the roads and travel in relative safety and get from one part of the empire to another. Now with all of this in place, the fullness of time came, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Of course, the advent of Jesus isn't the end, but it's only the beginning of his story because he didn't stay a baby. But he grew to manhood, taught, died, and rose again. And that's where the extraordinary meaning of the Advent preparations becomes fully apparent. Because on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the world were able to travel to 
Jerusalem. In Acts 2, it says, Now when the day of Pentecost came, there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together, each one in their own language being spoken, utterly amazed. Aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. You have got to look at a map of the Roman roads. I have it on the video. It is so extraordinary because, you know, we usually we just kind of read through that passage and go, oh yeah, but, uh, you know, all these people from all over. But if you look at a map of the Roman roads and you can find all these different areas that are mentioned, they're all precisely cities on the trade routes of the Roman roads. And again, Jews who had been scattered thousands of years ago had been still studying and reading and looking forward to the Messiah because now of the Roman roads and the Pax Romana were able to make their way to Jerusalem where they could hear the gospel preached. Thousands of years of history converged on that day. Jews meeting in Jerusalem from all over the known world because their scriptures told them they should come at that time. All expecting a Messiah preached to them in their synagogues for years in far-off lands, all safely traveling on the Roman roads under the Roman peace to get there. Who could have imagined that day? Certainly not. Think for a minute with me. A captive who lived over a thousand years earlier, shackled and starving, who was forced marched away from Jerusalem into Mesopotamia, he would have had no idea that one day one of his descendants would travel safely back to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost. Or a Jewish rabbi whose family stayed in Jerusalem over 500 years ago who could now travel in safety to Jerusalem for Passover. Or the thousands of other faithful God-fearing worshipers scattered throughout the ancient world for a multitude of reasons who are now in Jerusalem. Who could have imagined that these men would hear a fisherman named Peter quote the Old Testament fulfillment they had been taught about and prayed for and that they would now find in Jesus. As extraordinary as that day was, the miracles of God's preparation didn't even stop with Pentecost. This same, these same preparations were all used by the Apostle Paul. Into this world united by religion, language, culture, and linked by safe and good roads, the Apostle Paul would go from place to place. And just think about it. It's something, you know, we read our Bibles and we don't even realize what happened to make this possible. He would first go to the Jewish people who were scattered all over, many of them over a thousand years earlier. And what would he do? He would always first go into the Jewish synagogue that had been developed hundreds of years earlier. And he would stand up and he would read to them out of the Septuagint, the translation of the scriptures that had really relatively recently been made so they could all understand it and show them from that that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and Savior. I wonder if Paul 
thought about all that had to come together for this to be possible. The Jewish diaspora, the development of the synagogues, the formalization of the Hebrew scriptures, Alexander conquering the world, commanding everyone to speak Greek, the scriptures translated into Greek, the building of the Roman roads, and the Pax Romana. These seven preparations took place for Paul to be able to then take the message and many others whose stories we don't know throughout the entire world. Chances are he probably wasn't any more aware of all of the things God brings together to do, God brought together in his life than we are in all of the things that God brings together in our lives to accomplish his will. Let's talk a few minutes about application. This lesson is a great reminder that nothing happens by accident. Nothing is left to chance in the sovereign plan of God. It'll probably take time, more time than we would like, for God's plans to work out in our lives and in our world, but they will. In closing, I'm reminded of the words of Julian of Norwich, who lived through the plague in her day and who said, all will be well, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. The same God who prepared for thousands of years for the birth of his son, who got the people in Julian's day through their pandemic and many more of his people through many trials and past times, is with you now. And he will work out all for your ultimate good and his glory. You may not see answers or understand the part of your life played in his eternal plan on this earth, but someday you will, and then truly and forever all will be well. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, related resources, and various things on www.bible805.com. And especially for this lesson, because I have links to the maps and the video, and I also did a, this is a little present for you. Um, it's a, a link to a downloadable, free printable of Julian of Norwich's saying, all will be well. I just love it. I have it, I actually have it in my bathroom. I look at it every day. It's, it's a real encouragement to me. So please do check that out and, uh, and enjoy it. Now I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.